is now being recorded. We are SC Podcast. Gary Pasquich joined by Lizelle Brandt. And, uh, Lizelle, we are here to discuss the two days of testimony from Todd McNair in his case against the NCAA. Uh, days of testimony that you were telling us leading into this is so critical to this case in terms of the credibility and believability of Todd with the jurors. So let's start off at the top and uh, tell us what you thought as far as uh, his credibility with the jury. Absolutely, Gary. And again, it cannot be understated how important it is that the jury find him credible because you could have every other witness, his attorneys could make the case that, yes, the NCAA may have committed these violations, but if Todd McNair is not believable, then that kills that kills a lot of things. Like, you can get to a perfect point, and if for some reason he falters on the stand enough, it could single-handedly tank the case. He is absolutely the most important witness in this case, so a lot has, a lot was banking on these last two days. And so what is your opinion? From all the accounts that we read, it sure seemed like it couldn't have gone much better for Todd. There were a couple points the NCAA hit on. But for a lot of different reasons, Todd came across really well in those two days. Would you agree with that thought? I absolutely would, yes. I think what's easily – it's easy to forget and what gets lost in this is not only was he a coach at a top program, but he was also a recruiter and a national recruiter. And the reason why I say that is a lot of what he testified about was in, in, in great detail going into the house's of moms and dads of kids all across the country, from New Jersey to Florida, Georgia, everywhere, competing against the best coaches for the top players. And in doing that, what he's doing is is he's selling himself. He's talking to different family members, mothers, fathers, grandfathers, sisters, brothers, everybody, to try and tell them that they're entrusting their children in you know with his program, with him, and. I think that the skills from doing that also allowed him to just become a good natural witness who's being questioned. He's used to being asked tough questions by parents, by family members, not necessarily lawyers, but when he's on the stand and Bruce Borlett tells him to, right at the top, he says, when you answer about the, all of the different, he went down the list of the allegations of benefits uh, that Bush had received and asked him, did you know about this? And he said, absolutely not. And what Bruce Borlett told him to do and repeatedly do uh, the second time was to look at the jury. And he really had a good way about just looking at the jury, looking at the attorneys, whoever he was talking to. And uh, and he, I think that he just came across as genuine and honest. He's been so good at, you know, describing things, the program, whatever it is. So I think he did a good job at explaining himself. I wouldn't say the word is, is selling himself, but he did a really good job of coming across as, as honest and conveying the points that he needed to, to convey about all of the different, I mean, we'll go through them later on, but the different phone calls at issue, the, mm -hmm. you know, what were you doing here or there, um, everything from a career that was lost. And by the way, on, on that point, just a nice touch, the video montage about his career with the, with the Chiefs and then Mike up at USC. Uh, it was a pretty honest moment. Some people were asking, "Did he really cry?" And yeah, you could it, you could tell. But the, the montage was, was pretty moving. It was it was well edited actually. And at the end, you, you could really sense this is what he lost. He was at what better place could there have been to be coaching at? How fun was that? And you know, it was just taken away from him. So I think he, he presented a good job, especially, and in, 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 we're going to get into the cross, but under Bruce Borlett of making all the points that he needed to make, that here's 
who I was. Here is how I got to this place. He went through his a really long, detailed history about playing in the NFL, coaching in the NFL, getting to college, uh, bringing these kids up, developing them. And there's obviously been no felony convictions, no same history as Lloyd Lake. And I think he presented very well. I, I really enjoyed that video part, just hearing about it, um, because like you say, I thought that was a really good way of reminding people, here's where he was. He was the tailback, you know, the running back coach at tailback you under this magical run. This was a very high position he held, and the recruiting stuff as well, no doubt about it. Um, I thought that thing was good, but there, there was a point on Tuesday, on Thursday when you and I talked uh, at the lunch break uh, of the first session. And you talk about the way that he was explaining things, and you say, you know, people forget part of coaching is being a teacher and conveying things to your players. And he obviously was very good at that. And you said, boy, when coming across on the stand, that teaching element of explaining things came across really well. And I think that's something that is kind of forgotten about a football coach. Um, and so that obviously played well for Todd. So let's let, let's go through some of these things that uh, they, they were talking about in terms of, you know, let, let's start down. with – the cross exam. Let's start with the explanation of the McNair Lake relationship and how those phone calls were explained, the, the the photos. It sounds like he was very well prepared and Bruce Burlett was very well prepared to explain exactly how you got to that point, how his phone number ended up on Lloyd Lake's phone. Right. Uh, okay. So what I want to say is in preparation for, for um, cross exam, you usually want to make sure that you're, as, a, as an attorney, that, you're, that your clients have know what they testified before because one of the worst things that can happen is a contradiction where you're up on the stand and you say something but oh wait in a deposition or in a transcript before it, it's showing uh-huh. up that you've you've contradicted yourself because then suddenly this is blown up on you know a big equivalent of a vision board you've got this big um screen for all the jury to see and and now they're looking at themselves like Wait, you're you're not credible, and if you do enough of that, then that's you know that's what the NCAA needed. I don't know if they necessarily got it. Um, that's what they needed from McNair because again, there a lot of their case um, would would if they rise and fall on on his credibility. And so, when you, just to go back to you saying about him being a coach and how this affected things, I think as a coach, just like you're preparing for the games, you 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 do a lot of research. You want to make sure that you're addressing almost every single possible play. And I feel like he really did that. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it was Bruce Broilette as you know as the coach in this, I guess scenario, I'm telling him to just to make sure. Just to make sure that he's prepared and 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 having him at a place where he should be, but him on his own, you could tell that he really knew what he had said, and it was to the point where okay, so on Thursday he had done a couple of the NCAA's Stoykovic had tried a couple of impeachment attempts that really just just went off the mark, and it was so bad on Thursday that on Friday when it started to happen again, at one point Stoykovic said. You've read the transcript, right? He actually had to get out there that McNair had read his prior interviews, and I think he was doing it defensively to say that you have really studied this, and maybe that's the reason why you come across as so well-prepared, but really it's kind of implying that, yeah, you kind of have uh, got gotten the best of me. You've gone this a couple of times, and that's that's kind of how I read it as, as, as a lawyer. I felt like well, 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 you needed to get that out there. Let me ask you this really quick. Just explain to me, because this is so key, Todd's preparedness on these impeachment attempts. 
Um, can you explain to everybody listening to the podcast? The lawyers know what you're talking about. But 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 what are you what are you talking about when you say an impeachment attempt? Um, what the lawyer is trying to do? Sure, impeachment is is another way of to basically it's just an attack on credibility, and you can do it a uh-huh. couple of different ways. You can do it based on bias. It's like if somebody is a relative of somebody, obviously they're going to testify in their favor. Uh, if somebody is getting paid. Um, there's some sort of financial relationship that makes them beholden, makes them uh, more likely to be on this person's side. Uh, that's that, that's bias. Um, but then there's also the issue of, and I think this is, I, there's I would say no better way to to impeach a witness than to show direct contradictions on material things, uh, because you can also show that they were wrong on something that was collateral or something that was just not even relevant. In this case, it was, you know, was it Baxter, who was the special teams coach, or who was it Schneider that came in under Carroll? And uh, so if you are able to get somebody the word uh, lying or showing that they directly contradicted themselves later on, then you're mm-hmm. attacking the witness's credibility. You're not just saying, well, this witness that is, is up there, they're, they're um, related to the person. You're saying, look, they lied here. And then if you can do that enough times, then in, in closing, in, in the closing argument, you can easily say, well, why would you believe this person here? Look at this column on, you know, left side, he, um, they said this. On the right side, they said that. Boom, boom, boom. You go down the list, and suddenly the jurors are they're taking notes, and they're like, wow, should I believe this person? So mm-hmm. that's what I mean by impeachment. It's, it's something that when you're on cross-exam that you like to, that, that attorneys do. And the idea is, again, to discredit. You want to discredit the witness that is helpful to the other side. And, and so as we know, you know, as we watch in those two, two days, there were multiple attempts, including the first thing that uh, Costas tried, multiple attempts where he tried something impeachment on Todd, and Todd was able to walk them to another point of the transcript, just like you say, Costas saying, boy, you know the transcript, right? Talk about how impactful those moments were in the courtroom when they tried something and Todd basically flipped it around on them. Right. So I would say on – so, I mean, if you want me to walk you through them, on Thursday, the first um, time that um, Stoikovic came up, and, and I do want to say that usually, and it's pretty typical uh, in trials, when the other attorney comes up to cross-exam, usually the, the jurors are – on direct exam, the jurors are expecting that – Direct exam, I mean by, for instance, Brulette asking um, the witness, like, McNair, it's his witness. Uh-huh. So um, right. so they're usually expecting, and that's where it can kind of get, you know, I mean, you'll see sometimes, not necessarily here, but where it gets a little, it can get a little bit tedious because you're leading through a lot of background and you're telling your story. But when you when you learn that the attorney doing the cross-exam is coming up, you, you'll often see the jurors, they're going to sit up a little bit straighter because uh-huh. they're also, they've been sitting there for a while, and they see the cross-exam as as, a, as almost a show. Oh, this is where the fireworks are going to happen. This is where they're going to try and knock them down is what sure. they're looking for. So usually, in, and this isn't just in, you know, trials in general, not trial advocacy class in law school, but when you, you know, I've been at the DA's office, I've had civil trials, you're just, you just know that you want to make a good first impression on cross-exam. You want to um, attack them with something that sticks. Your, your first impeachment attempt, you really want it to, to be something that, you know, that works, whether it's a minor uh, or a major point. Um, 
it's something that just doesn't fall flat. And so when that, so when I saw him, because he's been, um, Star Club has been pretty good and methodical with the other witnesses. So when I saw him, almost like a, I'd say in volleyball, you're setting the the setter, setting somebody up to spike it, uh, the ball, and he goes through the motions of saying, well, he, um, you haven't always mean, maintained that you didn't know Lake, have you? And Sarah's like, well, yes, I have. And so he he says, well, let's go to this, you know, transcript of your February 2008 interview. And he starts highlighting things on the screen. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, he's, he's about to get to his point where, you know, this is going to be in big, um, big font, highlighted, blown up. You lied. And um, just to see him, Todd McCare say, no, wait a minute. Um, and just, and it was actually a little bit awkward because he was telling the attorney, no, you've got to scroll back up your transcript. So now the attorney's kind of taken aback and he's scrolling up to correct him. And that shows two things to me. Number one, yes, Todd McNair was very, very prepared. Um, but yep. two, the NCAA attorneys who, um, maybe not as much. Um, so I mean, I know that they have, I, I was there Thursday, Friday. I, I can't, it looks like at least six attorneys that were there, three that uh, were right um, um, in the actual courtroom area and three that were sitting in the audience. And I just don't know how that happens. But anyway, so, so – Like you say, in your experience as an attorney, in your experience, somebody within that law office is scrolling through all the testimony, let's make sure this guy didn't say this. Like you say, those details are not yeah. left to chance. Again, yeah, so the, you're also taught another big maxim in cross-exam is you, you don't want to ask an opposing witness a question that you don't already know the answer to because it's kind of just you're leaving it out there for them to just whack you, and you don't want that. So you have to have a lot of short, open-ended, short questions, yes or no, just walk them through it. Uh, the other thing that actually McNair got uh, away with a lot pretty well is just saying um, – Sometimes there may have been some yes or no questions, but he said, I'd like to explain. And rather than reining him in, uh, Stoikovic let him, and then right after that came the big whack, like, okay, uh, here's how I'm showing you that this is not what you thought mm -hmm. by McNair. So that was a, a lot of what was happening. And the other thing that made this interesting is not only was McNair correcting him, but the way that he was correcting him was like a teacher, like a coach. So he's, mm -hmm. he's already, he already has a very clear voice. You know, he's used to, whether it's Reggie Bush, Glendale White, Chauncey Washington, Ellie Havili, all of those people that you know, probably all have big egos. Maybe not even probably, but he, he's used to having dealt with people and, and explaining things to them to, to young people. And that really came across, especially when he was correcting story COVID, because he would walk up and he would talk very clearly like a coach. And you could tell when he's like, when, when um, Todd McNair was really in his element because he, he would have a different, I mean, he, the, his tone of voice just got a lot more comfortable, almost like I'm going to school you on this. And he did subsequently would explain it. And then the jurors are looking at each other like, we're not really sure what point the NCAA was trying to make. It just didn't look as effective. It looks like this guy just proved him wrong. And, and again, that's when his coaching skills just really came out. So well, that's what you forget. Through. You're like, it's not you just correct somebody. You're correcting him, and you're doing it in, in a pretty clear manner that shows mm -hmm. you know what you're talking about, and maybe they don't. 
we'll walk everybody through the, the point yesterday when uh, they put up the, the list of people that Todd McNair had referenced earlier in the trial. Why didn't you contact all these people? Because it's not oh, like yeah, that explanation scary. that he gave was just perfect. Right. So on thir- what had happened, so to kind of set the scene on Thursday, uh, some of the questions that came up were uh, – all of the people that he knew to, and if I remember right, it was to describe the, his experience in recruiting and um, also some of the coaches that had gone on um, to succeed in other places. So he had listed a bunch of players and uh, some coaches, and the NCAA came up with its own list. So this isn't like an existing document in, in evidence. It was called, it was basically something that was created for, they called it just demonstrative use, which means they weren't trying to admit it. They had just created this, this document and they just wanted to put it on the, the vision board, the, the screen for everybody to take a look at it. And it was a pretty big list. It had, if I remember right, before columns or five columns of, of, of people. And so I'm looking at that list in the audience, and I'm seeing you know, Ken Norton, Pat Rule, uh, let's see, Chris Richard, a whole bunch of them on the right side, and I'm seeing Lendell White in, I think, the second column from the right. I couldn't see all of them. A lot of it is because I'm short, and, and so some of, some of it was covered up. So that, that's kind of what I saw. And I was wondering what was going, and the NCAA attorney suddenly starts asking that, well, you, know, you didn't contact any of these people when you were looking for jobs, and that's when he had brought it up, when they're talking about uh, Todd McNair and his search for jobs, and mm-hmm. and uh, so when he asked that question, I remember thinking to myself, that's not fair, because on the right side, I'm seeing all of the Seattle coaches that uh, Carol took with him to Seattle, and I was thinking to myself without McNair saying it, why would, it's, it's not fair to be asking for him to individually contact these people when they were all under Carol when he went over there. So uh, when McNair asked to explain, but yeah, he, yeah, he stands up. And he's a presence, too. So he's, he's got this presence about him where and the jurors are, again, perking up even more. They're already perked up because this is cross-exam, but they're paying attention even more. As he walks down the list, and I didn't know all of the names, but I, I just heard him say retired, deceased, retired. Know, athlete, athlete, parents of athlete. He just went down the list uh, when he got to Ogeron and said something about like, don't get along with him or something like that. He's not a fan of Don't him. get along with him. Um, <laughs> yeah, which was surprising. I didn't know that. And then he got to all of the uh, the coaches that Carol took with him, and it was it was a pretty big uh, big fumble by the NCAA on that. And another thing that I could think was this is research. Uh, one of the things that, you know, on cross-exam that I know that I would want to do when I'm about to hit somebody with a point is make sure that that is iron tight because if it's not, it will blow up in your face pretty dramatically. And in this case, I, I think it really did. I was sitting with other reporters uh, in the audience, and we were looking at each other like, wow, that really just happened. Uh, they didn't apparently research that list well enough. Uh, to uh, one of the people on that list again was Lendale White, who we'd mentioned earlier was a, was his player. Why wasn't mm-hmm. he going to ask Lendale White for a coaching job? I feel like the only people that he didn't put up on that list were Kim Mallory, uh, <laughs> right. mom, mom, who he actually <laughs> right. did man, who he did, who he did mention actually on Friday as well when he was talking about just recruiting. Um, so, yeah. Very effective, okay, well, very prepared, showing about how well he was prepared, and such a contrast to the NCAA. 
and, and let's kind of talk about that because the NCAA did make a couple points. Um, there, there, there was the fact that they went about his, you know, how hard did you try to find some work? And I, that's obviously a point they're trying to hammer on for damage. There was also a surprise uh, with the loans from Reggie Bush. And then no matter how you look at yeah. it or how much of it may or may not be a big impact, but the, there was a little bit of an impact on that one. But it just seems as though, like, there are times when Costas is, is off the mark a little bit. Todd called it because we have a little bit of a culture difference uh, between us. But it just seems like some points he's trying to make, like you say, that they're missing trying to take a Todd statement saying Reggie was focused, but later saying he wasn't a student of the game and trying to attack that. And, again, Todd being able to say, hey, here's the difference in those two statements. Um, it just seems like he's been off the mark a little bit so far and maybe expecting a little more from the NCAA so far. Is that fair to say? Uh, I would say generally, yes, for the most part. And I want to take this one at a time. So the loans from, uh-huh. the loans from Reggie Bush – and uh, then the attempt to minimize his his uh, job search. So sure. as far as the loans from Bush, he actually, and I remember talking to you before that, how on Friday morning I wouldn't have expected him to open up with a weak point. I, I think that after being hammered by McNair the Thursday prior on two out of his three uh, impeachment attempts, I, I predicted that he would come in with a strong, strong hit that would stick. And sure enough, the first thing he does talk about are the loans from Reggie Bush. And I would have to say out of every single impeachment attempt that he had, this probably is the one that arguably may have stuck the most. And the reason is because it wasn't really disputed. Okay, so you have issues about well, what happened with Boyd Lake and the calls, and it's because of he said, she said. But on this one, these loans, and he actually, this is when he, he was he was very effective. What he did was he he showed each check by Reginald Bush the uh, Reginald Bush each time, and it's showing up on there. And uh, with the money, and he slowly walks it through. The jurors are writing every single down during every single thing down during this time because oh, this is this is a trap from this Reggie Bush big, yeah. Yeah. to to Todd McNair, and he slowly walked them through it through five checks totaling about sixty thousand dollars. And the jurors were very alert, so he did make his point there. Um, what I, and this is me guessing actually, uh, one thing that he did was he asked whether or not um, Todd McNair had repaid those loans. And what I think he was expecting was something to the effect of, no, I haven't, but but I will. Uh, because he seemed to have a stack of papers that he was going to go through after that. But Todd McNair immediately said, uh, I said it was a loan, but I don't have to pay him back. So he basically just just gave the money to, to me. And uh, so I kind of, kind of paused after that. He said, oh, he did? And you could tell that, and he, he, he paused for a little bit, and he was looking at his notes, and I kind of sensed that he was prepared to double down on the subject if McNair said that he, he wasn't going to pay him back. So I don't know if that was, mm-hmm. you know, preparation by Brolet or, or what, but I think it, it's not the best fact, so he was very upfront about it, and because of that, he was able to close the door to any further um, questioning on that. However, if I'm the jury, uh, if I'm on the jury, to me, I don't think that okay, – Broilette did ask him about the loans, and he admitted that he, he got them, but it's kind of been a – it's very close. It's, all the inquiry around this has been very short. And mm-hmm. I don't know if, if I'm on the jury, I'd still be wondering, well, well, well what's that all about? But um, the inquiry on that apparently has ended at least so far from what I've seen. So, But I think that that's okay. the one undisputed point that has stuck from the NCAA. Sure. Now, 
As to the NCAA going hard after him in his effort to find work and damages, I think, again, this is this is another area where the NCAA probably was able to, um, I would say, hurt him. Uh, but it also depends on who you believe more because on the – I say this is kind of 50-50. On the one hand, they did a really good job painting a picture of – the NCAA did a really good job painting a picture of about 32 NFL teams uh, and saying that he only actively reached out. And by that, they made this distinction saying, well, who did you call versus people calling you? So they, he, it came out that he only reached out to two NFL teams and then in the division – one and two colleges, which are there are about 300 out there. He had only reached out to one that was Sark and UW. And so they did this really good, as far as paying a visual, they were really good at, at doing that. Uh, what McNair did is he was able to explain about how, well, when you're looking for a job, there's this really small window of time where people fire right after the end of the season around January and jobs are opened up February, March time, but it's a really small one-month period, and coaching staffs are sort of like administration. They will come in, and they will bring in the head coach, and they will bring in all their guys. So if you miss a job during that really small one-month period, then you don't have a job again. You've got another year before you can look again at that level. And it seems like the NCAA was trying to imply that it's kind of like a regular, you know, receptionist admin job where these jobs would be available throughout the year every single month mm-hmm. and he was trying to explain that that's not really how it works um at this level that's there's a very small window of time and either you're going to get a job or you don't and so i think he was effective at doing that and and he did bring up all of his different it was a huge list of different attempts that he did try nearly got the arizona cardinals job seemed very you know, sad about that that was in 2013 and mm-hmm. i think that that adequately explains if I'm on the jury that adequately explains yes I yes I filed a lawsuit in 2011 but but I mean two things number one this is something that almost happened he was it shows that he was actively trying to find a job depression he said it happened 2011 2012 I could see that that sounds that sounds very normal especially where you know at the level that he was at and then right. also Later on, like the, the fact that he, he he started doing Uber, he was on food stamps, he ultimately accepted a job at Village Christian. That he's and he and the the other thing that he mentioned was if he really wanted to not work to you know to ruin his chance at this lawsuit, why would he accept a, a job two months before the trial date? Because apparently he had accepted a job at Village Christian uh, two months ago. So I think that came across really well and, and, and fine with the jury, how it was that he was was looking. So one of the things that I think I, I don't know how, how it would play out with the jury is he talked about how he mentioned that in his experience, uh, he only got jobs by people calling him and making calls, and that's the only way that he reached out. And at some point he had mentioned that he's used to people knocking on his door and not the other way around. So mm-hmm. I don't know how that would play in front of the jury in terms of, well, how hard were you, were you looking? Uh, but in general, I feel like when looking at what he had done, I don't think that it was any uh, abnormally low or unexpected or not even trying because there is such a huge list of different teams that he attempted to go to, whether it was Seattle or Arizona, going back to Temple. It, it was a pretty, I, it was a pretty good list of him trying, and unfortunately, it just hasn't worked out. And the other thing, again, he said was that, and and Borlet actually hammered this in pretty well on on redirect, was he he asked him how how 
hard of a time did you have finding a job before the show cause penalty? He said not, not, he didn't really have a hard time at all. It was easy. Obviously, he talked about his progression up the coaching ranks. And uh-huh. then Burlette says, well, after the show cause, how hard was it for you to find a job then? And obviously, the contract's very hard. How are you able to find a job with uh, this, you know, stigma attached to you. And the other thing that he also conveyed uh, was that USC, when that happened, was at the very top. They were on, you know, go- on the way to getting a three-peat. They were on a, in the middle of a historical run. They, as far as college football programs go, were at right there at the top. And so when a scandal like that happened, it was happening to what, the biggest school at the time. And so it, his name being attached to that probably hurt him a lot. And I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, let's talk about the last, uh, the way things ended with Costas and when he ended his questioning and McNair kind of, uh, gave an interesting comment, uh, or question. Right uh, before we get to that, Gary, actually, Gary, before we get to that, actually, yeah. sorry, this is, this is my bad, actually. I know this is that you had also asked about the explanation of the McNair Lake relationship phone calls. Oh, yeah. Photos. Well, I don't know if about that next, but okay. I want to make sure that we, 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 we we will come back. Sorry, to that. Go ahead. We will come back to that. Yeah, just uh, the, the McNair comment at the end with Costa, which I thought was classic. The, the okay, way the McNair, yes, when the way that Costa had ended his his cross exam, and again, usually you want to make sure that you end a cross exam with a good point, a, a good point that bites, another good possible impeachment point, and. His last line of questioning involved uh, whether or not – or the fact that nobody else that had testified had any money at stake, meaning whether it was Uphoff or Howard or anybody else that had taken the stand. And McNair confirmed that, yes, he's the only person who's testified so far that, that has money in this game because, well, he's the plaintiff. He's the one that's seeking damages. The other people that have testified are committee members, unpaid committee members. So – I don't know if that was necessarily the strongest point to end, end on. Uh, and then what, 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 what did McNair say? What did McNair say? And that's it? <laughs> at the very end, he says, because the, the attorney says, okay, I'm done with my questioning, and, and he goes, that's it. And the way that he said it, there was just this, like, tone of, usually when you, when you if you have, when witnesses are, are finished being cross-examined, some of them will come across as decide, like, okay, wow, that's it, okay, that was, they'll, like, breathe out they'll exhale like i'm so happy this is over this was awful and his body language and what he said to me indicated that he thought that it would be tougher that the ncaa would have gotten a lot more hits but and i think that that's a true reflection in just speaking to the other people that were observing in the audience with me that i don't think that ncaa got a lot of points to stick now of course i'm not on the jury you never know right. but that's just from my observations and in talking with the other people that were in the audience right. so yeah okay. i think yeah. it voted well okay and, and yes I, I i do want to talk about the uh to me, one of the things that a lot of people on the message board were asking about were the explanations of the phone calls connecting Todd and Lloyd Lake. And how did, how did Todd's number get on Lloyd Lake's phone? That was a very interesting one. How did things go with talking about the, uh, the two minute phone call, the January phone call? How, how did those, how did those conversations go and how did they play in the courtroom? I think they they played well. This is where it really is going to come down to he said, she said. Are you going to believe Todd McNair or are you going to believe convicted felon Boyd Lake? 
Todd McNair's explanation to me seemed very plausible, very believable, logical, based on what was happening. He did a really good job of, of painting the picture of the number one recruit in the country, Percy Harvin, being there October 29th, 2005. And uh, one of the big dramatic points that happened was for a while the NCAA had been showing this list of calls uh, from Todd McNair's phone to Reggie Bush, Reggie Bush, but it's an extracted list. It's a list that was prepared uh, by somebody else, I believe, I think it's the NCAA, and it shows all of the calls all together uh, listing Reggie Bush and how long they were. So when Bruce Broilett said, let's talk about your whole phone record so that the, everybody could see this in context, again, you have them, the uh, as I mentioned, the jurors start training our necks. They're like, oh, we, we this is great to see the full record. Let's, I would like to hear, hear the full story. So when McNair talks about Percy Harvin being there and then, and this is, and the thing about this that makes it all the more credible is that this was, and then people knew about this. this he, he was in town. It's been covered by the media. And mm-hmm. he, yes, he didn't end up com- committing to USC. Well, there was, he was left at the hotel. So when you look, look at, he, he went down all the phone calls. And so he talked a lot about one of the names that came up a lot was Jared Blank. And that's because he was coordinating a lot of the visitors at this time. So he explains about how somehow he found out that Percy Harvin's home alone at the whole hotel, which is what you really don't want the number of recruits to be doing in his recruiting visit when Reggie Bush is hosting him. So he then he goes through all the phone calls and explains that he's trying to get a hold of Reggie. Reggie explains to him his phone is dying. Call me at this number, which makes sense if he's, you know, knew Lloyd Lake. He was with him. So that's why he calls Lloyd Lake. And there are three calls, two of them. You see them on the on the um, the big screen, it shows that they're the first two are just one minute, and to Reggie, only one minute. And so when he explains that these were just connections that didn't go through, people weren't answering, it, it makes sense because it's, again, a one-minute call. There's no way to establish that a connection even happened. Uh, what's going on? He's trying to get a hold of Reggie Bush. And ultimately, that ended up happening. And so I think that that's a credible explanation as to how Lloyd Lake got his phone number. Burlett hammered on that again with, with Todd McNair when he said, you didn't give him his phone number, did you? Uh, but he had it when you did call him at that number. And the only reason why at that October 29th, um, 2005 evening, and the only reason why you gave him that number, or not even gave him that number, the only reason why Lloyd Lake got that number is because Reggie told you to find to call him at that number if you needed to reach him, which he did in order to make sure that Percy Harvin was it sitting at a hotel room all by himself when Reggie was supposed to be hosting him. And I guess apparently, ultimately, that uh, Reggie Bush ended up going back to the hotel to, to get him later that evening. And so, like the point you made, and, and the fact that once it was established that Reggie was on his way to get him, there was no other calls from Todd because the situation was under control. Right. And then now going to the January call, the other thing that Broilette was good about getting out there was there were no other calls between October 29, 2005 and January 8, 2006. So if you're actually trying to have this nefarious scheme with Lloyd Lake to whatever it is you're going to do with Reggie Bush, would you, wouldn't you want to talk to him more than, I don't know, once between that one party that evening, October 25, uh, October uh-huh. 29, 2005, and, and January 8th. And the other thing is that uh, what Todd McNair says he doesn't remember that call. And and what Bruce Barlett had painted was an image of 
uh, and a lot of questions that he had asked when he asked the committee members is, uh, this is when they were testifying um, up hop in particular, did you ever, you know, bother to try to find out if Lloyd Lake was drunk that night because he was about to go back to prison, and when he made that call at 1 o'clock in the morning, do you know where he was calling? Could he have been at a club? Uh, party uh-huh. last night, and then uh-huh. maybe one of the reasons why he's on the phone for a while is because you can't hear, you don't know what he's saying, and maybe it could be that. Um, but none of that was asked uh, this con- about this convicted felon. They just took him on his face. But to me, just from a common sense perspective, Gary, if you call somebody at one thirty in the morning, um, Todd McNair, and you tell him, Look, your program is going to go down, and you're, you're starting to threaten the program about going out, going out to the public about these um, improper benefits received by your star player, and how this is going to take the program down. Von Tomlinger, wouldn't you want to, whether or not it's true, call Reggie Bush immediately, right? Certainly makes sense in hindsight. I just. I, I think at one point, if somebody was threatening my program, I've got a lot of stake. Mm-hmm. I'm at a job that I love working for the top program in the country. You either call Reggie Bush, you call Pete Carroll, whether or not it's true, and you just say, look, this is you know, this is what's happening. This person has called me. I don't know how much of it's true, or even if it's the worst-case scenario, look, this is a situation. Uh, this guy is about to come out in the public, and and McNair, I think he credibly said, like, otherwise, you're on the news, you're on the ticker when you wake up in the morning. If it was a threatening phone call like that, I would say, to me, you would call Reggie Bush. If, if, if you're in on it with Reggie Bush, then you call Reggie Bush right after, and you say, look, what's going on over here? If you're not, you still call Reggie Bush, and you call Pete Carroll, but you don't see any calls on the record from any of McNair's calls to Bush or Carroll, the next time he called Bush was 12 hours later. And to me, that doesn't sound like somebody that was threatened. And mm-hmm. and it even made more sense the next time that he was calling, because I think within a day or two, he was going to be meeting with his other agents. So there wasn't that, that was a credible reason to be calling him. So I think, I think he adequately explained it. The question is back to kind of like with the committee of infractions. Um, are they going to believe him over Lloyd Lake's? Yeah, okay, let, let's talk. Let's talk about that really quick, because um, there were some questions on the board uh, yesterday. Asked, you know, following up to what you had uh, reported from the courthouse, saying, you know, what, why isn't Reggie testifying? Why isn't Roy Lloyd Lake up on the stand as well? And there, it went back to the settlement that the two of them had, which came out right before the uh, committee of infractions reached their report in 2010. Uh, but there is a thought that it could have been overridden, but it's not. Explain. I guess, in essence, why they are not testifying in this case. Sure, sure, Gary. So in April of 2010, the lawsuit uh, by Lake against Bush and even Michaels, they had settled. Now, I know that uh, everybody knows that NCAA doesn't really have subpoena power, so they were actually mm-hmm. relying on this lawsuit progressing because on um, – on tap was going to be depositions of Reggie Bush, Lloyd Lake, Michael Michaels. They were all scheduled, but then they ultimately ended up settling the cases. And the reports from, it was the San Diego Tribune, the Pasadena Star News around April said that this was subject to uh, a settlement agreement, a confidentiality agreement that prohibited at least Lake 
from testifying publicly about the event. Now, what that tells me, and usually, yes, in settlement agreements, uh, in pretty much all the settlement agreements that I, I've been involved in, there's a confidentiality agreement that um, would have a clause in there that says an exception to this being confidential is um, legal process, court order, which which um, is a way to get around it. Now, because the report said that uh, testimony by Lake was prohibited, my guess is that exception to testimony, legal process, court order, my guess, without seeing the settlement agreement, especially if it's a confidentiality settlement agreement, is that that clause was not in there. However, you can still get around this with a court order. Now, the thing is, if the court order isn't just going to magically all happen on its own, somebody's going to have to request that one of the parties, uh, unless the court decides to do it, which I think would be very rare, especially in a civil case like this. Um, but as far as the – I looked at the docket in this case um, before Schaller, and I looked at the list. I did a cursory uh, search to see if there were any sorts of motions to compel testimony of either Bush or Lake, and I didn't see any. So my – I guess um, my reading of that is that perhaps – neither side thought that it would be worth it to try to compel testimony of either Reggie Bush or Lloyd Lake, probably thinking that uh, they wouldn't want to see them cross-examined live by the other side, maybe viewing either one or both as, as shady in their own right, because what did happen to, between Reggie and uh, Lloyd Lake and Michael Ornstein and then Michael Michaels, all, all of those people, separate of USC and whether or not USC knew about that, that is its own situation. And, you know, is that a Pandora's box you want to open? And it doesn't look like either side wants to do that. Okay, that is interesting. So we are we are finished with uh, the Todd McNair side of uh, the case. Are we going to the NCAA next? Uh, well, no, well, we're finished with his testimony. So okay. Todd McNair can call up a lot of witnesses. His uh, wife, Lynette, is still on the list of witnesses to believe to be called. Who I haven't seen um, be called so far. Uh, there are still other members of the Committee of Infractions that they want to call, including Eleanor Myers. Uh, and other people, it's a, it's a pretty long list that they still haven't gone through. So they're not done yet. The plaintiffs aren't done okay. with their list. So they go through their witnesses, and then what happens after that is the NCAA is going to put on uh, their witnesses that haven't already been called because some of the their witnesses are on the Committee of Infractions, like Ophoff, they've already been called. So the NCAA right. is going to call um, and present its case with its witnesses, and after that, the plaintiff, Todd McGear, will have an opportunity to provide rebuttal witnesses. So they can provide rebuttal witnesses, and, and that can go on for a little bit because sometimes uh -huh. the, even the defendants will be able to provide rebuttals to the rebuttals, uh, depending on how, how long that goes. Uh, our last trial, we had rebuttal, 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 and then we were done. So we went through a couple of rounds of rebuttal. And, and then okay. after that, you get to uh, closing arguments. So that's okay, where we're so at. We're, I, so I mean, this is a three trial. This is a three week trial projected. I don't think it's going to get. I, I'd be not surprised be if this finishes in three weeks. I don't see this being done at the at, by Friday of this this coming week at all. I don't. Right. Okay. Well, the good stuff was the last two days. That 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 was fascinating to follow, and uh, and it really sounds like things just like we, we alluded to earlier. Boy, can't really cited on the side of Todd McNair on those last two days. Will be interesting to see where it goes.
Yes, I, and it, and it, I think it came out as well as he could be from both the direct and the cross. He presented all the points that he needed to present on direct and on uh-huh. cross. He was pretty, I'd say, successful at uh, avoiding being bitten too strongly. The, the weakest point I would say probably is just the the loans that were undisputed from Reggie Bush. Maybe mm-hmm. the jury would mm-hmm. like to see an explanation on that. But I think everything else comes down to he said, she said, and who do you believe more? And I, I believe he did present as credible and likable. The other thing I, I did want to um, expand on was the fact that the jury was was laughing with him. They, and they were laughing with Borlet, too. So Borlet's got this way of really just made, his self-deprecating way of connecting with the jury, too. So not only is McNair connecting, but the jury is connecting. So actually one of the other things mm-hmm. I do want to add is that is a little bit of a contrast to Stoikovic, who uh, doesn't seem to be – he's got his own style, but there have been times when even McNair called him out about it being a cultural issue, misunderstanding thing, and you're looking at the jury, and they, they, they get it because he's asking about how, you know, just just the different, um, you know, whether his misunderstandings about what – what are what what it is that Reggie Bush had on campus, and you know whether the Chevy right. Impala and how that was translating uh, versus the other students that were there. There was th- that was another awkward moment actually when when that happened. But um, anyway, so the the point being that uh, Roy Lett also in in addition to McNair, McNair connecting pretty well already. I I contacted with the jury. Roy Lett also has this good way about him that makes the the jury. Laugh. I would say in the times that I've been there, I've seen him successfully do that many times. Um, a little in contrast to Story Clevix, who's, who's more generally more formal. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for your time, Lizelle. This uh, you have a unique perspective on this, and it's really been interesting to follow these last couple uh, these last couple of weeks. Can't wait to see where it goes. For Lizelle Brandt, this is Gary Pasquitz. You're listening to the We Are SC podcast.